Asian man. This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. Special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The same. Yo, 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 take it out. The world is listening. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour, where we seek out and explore new ideas and new ways of seeing and relating with the world around us, with an ear to creating a more beautiful world. My guest here in the studio is Jenny Martino. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> 
So you went to Goddard, right? I did go to Goddard. Yeah, I'm an I'm an alumna of the Health Arts and Sciences program at Goddard. So how did you find Goddard, and why did you end up going to Goddard? I found Goddard in the most bizarre way, as I think most people do. I was actually at an herb conference in, I think it was South Carolina or North Carolina, and this woman behind me in line was talking about what she was studying and the curriculum that she was kind of creating for herself. And I had been something of a career student at that point, single mother, just trying to get my bachelor's. And I had to turn around and be like, what are you talking, what is this place? And she said, Goddard College in Vermont. And pretty much within four weeks, I was visiting Goddard and enrolling and falling madly in love with a place. So that's how I found Goddard. What was it about this place that made you fall in love with it? I mean, what did you fall in love with? I fell in love with both Vermont in general, the landscape. I love being in a place where there are no billboards and I don't feel accosted to buy things. I fell in love with Goddard, the culture here, the respect for sovereignty and intellectual sovereignty. And it's just a wonderful place. So what did you study? (laughs) What was your study? My study was looking at health through an evolutionary lens And the culmination of my studies was a book that I wrote called The Feral Ache, which is available as a Kindle on Amazon. I self-published it at the gentle push of my advisor at the time. And so that kind of was the beginning of really looking at health through a different lens than the mainstream colonized military industrial lens of health. So I suspect that's where we're going this morning, is, <laughs> is teasing out that whole spectrum there. Sure. So, The Feral Ache. Yes. That's a very interesting sounding title. And the subtitle is How a Science Virgin Decided to Go All the Way. A Science Virgin <laughs> Decided to Go All the Way. Explain <clears throat> that. <laughs> I was raised from pre-kindergarten to 12th grade. I went to a private evangelical Christian school in Haiti, which is the country where I am from, born and raised. And science was always filtered through the lens of the Bible. So it wasn't very rigorous study. And in one of my first science classes at the college level, it was a biology class. And in 45 minutes, like just with some dish soap and some salt and some other household ingredients, we had mashed a strawberry and wound the DNA of the strawberry around a toothpick. And I was completely smitten. I was a goner. I was like, this is amazing. Wait a minute. You did this in the school in Haiti? Uh, No. The strawberry happened in Armstrong Atlantic State University in Savannah, Georgia, which is where I went after leaving Haiti pretty much as a refugee from the kidnapping crisis to live in Savannah. So how old were you when you escaped? Oh, I was an old soul. I was in my early 30s. So you started going to school late. You lost your scientific virginity late in life. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty magical because science is, is very magical. Science I find incredibly magical. And there is some pushback against science particularly with those that are kind of, quote-unquote, in the alternative life path. But I find science so beautiful in the questioning. And true science is always checking itself and acknowledging how little we know and that there's so much mystery and so much more to discover. I find it beautiful. Yes. I'm one of those people who tends to push back on the current state of like mainstream science, the kind of entrenched, institutionalized science that says we know it all. And unless you can prove otherwise, you know, this is it. Absolutely. I agree with what you're saying. And because we're all born scientists, we're all born observing and testing and experimenting and find out what happens when I do this. And once science has been colonized and through the civilized mindset that we have to figure out, like there's this reduction that happens. And it's a necessary thing if you want to figure out what is causing something, quote unquote, but that thing never gets plugged back into the hole. And there are so many variables that create an occurrence that science has become 
the face of science is this really strident and compartmentalized and scary thing that I feel has really lost the essence of what true science is. I've been reading this book, and this morning I was reading, this guy's talking about complexity theory. Mm. And complexity theory is a very interesting thing, and it pertains directly to what we're talking about right now, science. The essence of it to me is that life is a continually emerging thing. Yes. And that's what makes science so wondrous. And it's the wonder yes. of science that is what makes science so rich and so magical and so wonderful. And unfortunately, people, as they get older, have a tendency to lose touch with that wonder. And I think that's the problem. And when you lose touch with wonder, I think you tend to fall into this thing that, that we see in our political system, in everything in our current world, where people try to reduce things into recognizable patterns that you can understand and continue from the past, present, and into the future unchanged. And that's the exact opposite of complexity theory. Absolutely. And I'm so fascinated that you brought that up because in Franz Fanon's work, The Wretched of the Earth, he talks about how the colonized, the Western European colonized value of stasis is so prevalent. And when you were talking about how science is wondrous, I would like to add, I think that life is wondrous. Life is what's really wondrous. And science can be such a fascinating lens to look at the wonder of life. And it is very sad that what is happening in some scientific circles, it takes 30 to 40 years for the rest of us to know about it because we are so invested and so educated and so brainwashed to value stasis and things remaining constantly the same. And there's a thing in human nature that craves the illusory security of stasis. Yes. And see, this is where I find it fascinating because I'm not even sure that we really even know what human nature actually is because we're so civilized and so colonized and so out of touch with what it even means to be human that I really don't know what human nature actually is. And safety is completely illusory. It's a complete illusion. Well, you talked about this 30 or 40 year lag catching up with what science is discovering, but that happens in a sense that happens in the evolutionary journey of each human being. We go through an evolutionary process of learning how to learn, learning how to see, learning how to relate, to converse with our environment and the world around us, and also the environment that's emerging within ourselves in relation to our relationship to the world around us. And part of that evolutionary journey is going through all of those pre-adolescent and adolescent phases of understanding. Possibly. I wonder, though, if it's not more a question of relearning. I feel that I knew so much more at six years old than I do now. Unlearning. <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of unlearning and relearning. And we're born with all the tools. And by the time that we are probably 12 years old, there has been a lot of concerted investment and a lot of time spent crushing our innate understanding and our innate knowing of how to relate to others and how to be in the world because we're all born sovereign and there is so much effort and money and time that goes into destroying that sovereignty and so this evolution that you're speaking about is a necessary evolution in this societal context. Arthur Haynes, who is a botanist and he speaks a lot about traditional life ways, has mentioned that by the time a hunter-gatherer child is eight years old, they have all the knowledge that they need to survive on their own in the wild. And I can barely make a fire with my bow drill. And I'm 43. And you're ahead of most people. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a matter of how we're being educated, what information we're being allowed to have, what information we have access to. And the first and most important source of information that we get cut off from is our body. And 
it takes a lot of time for those of us that are in this particular societal context to even be aware of what's happening below the neck. And when you say aware of our body, what do you mean by that? Because most people are still unaware of their bodies. So I think we need to flesh this out. Like, what does it mean to be aware of our bodies? And what is it that we can become aware of in our bodies? You know, to entice people to maybe explore this if they're not familiar with this or if they only have a vague inkling of this. Wow, that's a a really broad question. Um, Where would you begin? Because that's an evolutionary journey as well, particularly for people who get lost in the Western culture. Yes, most definitely. This is kind of the field of embodiment studies. It is not possible to be disembodied. We, we are always in our body. We are always aware of some part of our body. It's just that in the Western, and we'll just use that as shorthand for the society that most of us live in, the Western cultural context really worships at the shrine of the brain. like And devalues the rest. And devalues the rest completely. However, your consciousness can move throughout your body. You can be aware of where your toes are. You can be aware of that pain in your lower back. Because every single one of your cells is equipped with proprioceptors, and that's just like a $40 word to explain that your cells know where they are in space and that they know that they're part of you. And that they're in constant communication with the rest of us. Absolutely, in constant communication. So awareness is something that you can actually move around. And my very favorite embodiment practice is to be barefoot. That's my absolute favorite. (laughs) Because the soles of your feet are as far as you can get from your scalp as possible. And it actually puts you in touch with the actual earth, the planet. It introduces you to textures. It starts to change the map of your brain. That's where I would begin actually is just take your shoes off and go outside. Go outside. Yeah. I wish we had some either dirt or grass here or sand is is my favorite. Warm sand on the beach to walk in. Yeah. I'm from the island. So I love myself some warm sand. (laughs) (laughs) So I can totally relate to that. So What is the value of having that kind of embodied awareness in our body below our neck? Oh, it's... Because in our culture, we do put all the value in our head because everything below that is animalistic and that's kind of antithetical to Western civilization. Absolutely. According to most people. Absolutely. So what is the value of being conscious, being aware of our body and really being in our body and revaluing that experience well everything that happens happens to the body entire once you are aware of your body you start to reclaim your sovereignty and you start to reclaim your agency it brings a lot of often very painful awareness about the stresses and the pain that we actually live in all the time so one result of becoming aware of your body is some activism. It's really difficult to continue to be complacent when the awareness of what the body has to suffer on a daily basis rises to the surface. The other value is empathy and compassion because violence happens to bodies. Colonization happens to bodies. It's not a theoretical brain space where we can just talk about in academic circles. It's happening and violence is happening to bodies. Empathy and compassion are so important in the motivation to stand in solidarity with others. And it leads to very different choices. Once I was very aware of my, became re-aware of my body as aware, almost as aware as I was when I was six years old, the choices I made with what I ate, with where I moved, how I slept, all of these things became very different. And those choices trickle down to change society. That's the value of being aware of the body. It changes things. We live in a culture where most people are up in their heads. They're Mm -hmm. pretty much completely disconnected from their bodies, even though they do live in their bodies. Mm -hmm. As you said, we're all in our bodies. Yes, Everything happens in our bodies. But we do have the choice to focus our attention where we, well, where we think we want to, where we place our values. Absolutely. So when people are isolated in their heads and they've lived in their heads for many, many years, many people for decades, and they've completely forgotten the wonderful 
wonderfully pleasurable experience of being a child mm. and being in our bodies. What happens to the rest of the world? What happens to our relationship with the world around us and to our relationships with people and things and all? Yes, there's so much that you just said there. I just wanted to address really quickly, not everybody had a wonderful childhood. And so sometimes the escape into the brain is a protective mechanism. And descending back into the body is really a scary thing. The other thing that you touched on about relationship, the body is how we relate to everything. It's how we relate to the wind. It's how we relate to another person. It's how we relate to the sun. And the relationships that we start to develop become very different. I just lost the thread of what I was going to say because you said something so amazing. Do you remember what it was I said? I do not remember. Huh. Well. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> I do remember what I was going to say. That our bodies are, are not just individual pods. They're, they are contextual. And I really see us much more as a grove of birch trees than anything else. When people are in conversation and looking in, into each other's eyes and breathing, their hearts, their heartbeats will sync up, their breathing will sync up. And that is a beautiful awareness that we actually affect each other in this way. We are nourishment for each other. And when one of us is hurting, that is also felt. And that feeds back into the empathy and compassion piece because my compassion for someone is felt because I feel what they feel and on a very physiological level. And when I shut myself off from that, it's easy for me to perpetuate and be part of complicit with whatever the system is that is keeping that person suffering. So we're talking about the dynamic between the sense of separation and the sense of connection. Sure. As you were talking about that, I was thinking about the mycelial world. Yes. Where there's this huge, like supposedly three quarters of the planet or two thirds of the planet is actually covered subterraneanely by these massive mm. bodies of mycelial culture, mycelial life, and then individual mushrooms or fungi emerge periodically from this fruiting body that mm. lives in mass. And that reminded me of the notion of the field, um, which the early quantum physicists were all saying, this is it. This is where it, it's all emerging from. And that that's the basis. If you want to understand anything, that this is it. And, and then it, it disappeared. Hmm. Until very recently, people are bringing it back, but they're getting a lot of pushback. But back to that mycelial yeah. metaphor, again, it's going back to that same principle of interdependence and interconnection, that we're not separate. We have the illusion of separation. And even Einstein said that the sense of separation is an illusion. Yes. And absolutely. It absolutely is. And when I talk about the importance of bodies, I want to make clear that it's not just the human animal. It's not that just Homo sapiens body that is important. All bodies are important. Because essentially it's one body. <laughs> because essentially it's one body. The whole universe. Is one body. Yes. And perhaps even the multiverse. Quite possibly. One, yes. one body, if we don't look at it in the particle sense, but we look yes. at it in the wave sense. Absolutely. Because when you're talking about mycelium, I have fibromyalgia. And one of the things I think about quite a bit is actually my fascia. And fascia, for those of you that have ever prepared chicken, fascia is that white membrane between the skin and the meat of the chicken. And we also have it. And I'm also an artist and I was making these photographic weavings between some nudes of myself and some pictures of mushrooms that I had taken because our body is very much a physical, actual thing. And we can also think about it as metaphor for everything because I am a body. I am also part of the greater body of the planet and my body is made up of trillions of bodies. I have trillions of cells and only one-tenth of those cells are actually me. The rest are bacteria. So this idea of separateness and me as an actual separate 
entity. Those get really messy and fluid, and it's not really a thing to be separate. I'm always struck, like you even said, only 10% of me is me. Yeah. And how do we make those distinctions between the bacteria that live in our bodies there are parasites in our bodies. There's all kinds of living organisms and even some that science questions whether they're alive, mm. living or not. And they're all living in symbiotic relationship yes. with each other within us. So what makes us us and what's other than us inside of us? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And as you said, that extends outwardly yes. in different nested levels as far as we can imagine. Absolutely. And only limited by our ability to imagine. Absolutely. And when you were talking about the wonder of life and how wondrous life is, that's what we are. We're, bodies are just vehicles for life to express itself. And, and experience itself. And experience itself. And experiment and play and find out what new sorts of ways it can express itself in. And we're just a link in the chain. I am a link between what has all come before and what will come after. It's both very humbling and also awe-inspiring to me. And ever-growing, ever-expanding, ever-changing, ever-evolving, ever-emerging. Yes. Not stasis. Not stasis. Not the colonized view, not the colonized value. So whatever we learn, there's always so much more to learn. And the thing that more and more I come to realize as I get older is that the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. That the universe expands way faster than the speed of my learning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And at the same time, I feel that learning is something that can be directed. But what I mean by that is education can either be something that frees us or further enslaves us to a certain way of thinking and a certain system that is in place. And so the evolution of that learning, it all depends on where that tool or weapon is focused. What are we learning? And the fluidity of that learning. Yeah. Like whether it is like water or if it becomes set like concrete. Yes. Yeah. And it's like an impulse to make things constant like concrete that so that they don't shift, they don't change. I think that's a colonized thing. I don't think it's a human thing to want things to be concrete. I think that's a value that we have been inculcated with. But isn't that something that is unique to humans? The creation of wanting things to be concrete? To be be stasis, to be secure, to be I think that's unique to colonized and civilized humans. I don't think it's a natural, innate thing at all, because the way... Not initially. Or, or ever, it, it will never become natural and innate. Okay. It becomes normalized. It's a response. It's an inculcated value. It's, a, it's, um, it's doctrination. Say, but, but it begins somewhere. Right. It, become, it begins with being educated in a colonized worldview. But even that education, <laughs> yes. even that colonized education begins, emerges from somewhere. Yes. And, I mean, it is of my opinion, and there is some backing for this opinion, but my opinion is that the colonized way of viewing the world is the result of basically agriculture and it actually changed the human animal into something else that thinks a little differently because it is a form of, I hate using this term, but mental illness. It is a form of mental illness. There's something wrong with our brains. Now you're talking about the colonized brain. Yes, I am. Yes. I recognize that the emergence of agriculture, the creation of agriculture as being probably the first foundational cornerstone of this impulse to control and maintain security and stasis in our lives. But still, I'm wanting to return back to what you something you said earlier about not all children grew up having enjoyable experiences in their body. Yeah. Many children, many, many around the world experience a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And that's my sense of where that emerges from, from trauma, because we're in relation to the world around us. And and if we have a traumatic experience on any level, even if it's on a cellular level, we tend to pull back. And then how we integrate 
that experience, what we learn from that determines. And again, this is this an aspect of complexity theory and the scientific approach to life. You know, the observation of our relationships and our experience with the world around us. Because there's no such thing as objectivity. It's all subjective. Yes. It's all interrelational dynamics that we learn from. Right. And what is really interesting about what you're saying about children and trauma, these isolated See, this, these are nesting dolls, so I'm trying to pull them apart so that we can kind of look at them. This living in ways that are not the ways of the human animal that we lived in for hundreds of thousands of years before the onset of agriculture, which radically changed our ways of relating to each other, radically changed family dynamics. Before all of that happened, we were living in family groups of maybe 30 to 150 people. And... This idea of a traumatized child then having to deal with their trauma on their own, it's really, really difficult for us to even comprehend what it was like to live in a family group where our parents were pretty much everybody. And there was not really the possibility of being isolated. It wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a human thing to deal with isolation. So when you're talking about this trauma, because trauma is a part of life, we all experience trauma. However, when we're living within the ways that we emerged from nature, all of the things are already in place for us to process trauma, just like all animals know how to process trauma. All animals know, we know. Or we used to know. Right. Hopefully. Yeah, I, I, and I still think that children know. It's just overridden. They know. But in tribal societies, they had their shamans or right. their wise people who lived out on the fringe. There was always somebody on the fringe, somebody who had a deeper insight, had the handing down of insight yeah. into these dynamics that the rest of the tribe didn't know about or didn't need to know about because they were just going about the business of their lives. Yeah, and this gets messy because we don't really have the stories from the people themselves. This is all through our colonized, educated eyeballs looking at this through our own stories and our own lens. Right, we're filtering it through. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really difficult even for me to speak with a whole lot of authority about, well, this is how it was because we really don't know and I think that's really uncomfortable for us to admit that we really have no idea what it actually means to be a human being. Right. And the only way that we really can get any sense of that is to be really present in our bodies Boom. in this moment. Yes. This is it. <laughs> this, this is, is the it. only way. This is it. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, everything emerges again including the cycles of pleasure and pain. Yes. Which if somehow or other we can stay present in our yeah. bodies, we can deal with. Yes. In a natural, healthy way. But again, I'm, I'm thinking back to the traditions of shamans and healers and wise elders who can help people deal with the things that they aren't able to deal with naturally on their own. And when those experiences then get stuck in the body mm -hmm. or the psyche, mm -hmm. however you want to talk about it, and get passed on generationally. Yeah. And it goes beyond just generations because it enters into that quote-unquote field of experience of, of energy and information that everyone is connected to. Yes. So the role of the healer, the shaman, the wise elder is so important or as you say as best as we can understand looking back yeah what about people who are deeply into yoga the sort of people who go to india and do it five hours a day are they in touch with their bodies um i am not an expert on yoga i've practiced yoga every once in a while the practice of yoga began as a way to actually silence the body in order to meditate and enter the mind. So the practice of yoga in and of itself, that's tricky because the intention of all of these exercises was actually to silence the body. So that's all I'm going to say about that. To be clear in the body, perhaps. For the body to be clear enough that we can release it in the moment? 
Right. And for me, from my position, that's a bit problematic because I never want to release my body. I never want to silence it. I never want to cut off the communication of my body. Yes. I'm reflecting back on my experience of this. Okay. I think, yes, th- I, I imagine there are people who do get obsessed with the notion of silencing the body, but I think in terms of there are times when the body itself will settle and become silent the way a body of water will become so still sure. that you can see to the bottom. I've always been taught that the yoga was to quiet the mind, but I'm just interested because of, of the body. I'm interested in getting into the body, and I do yoga. The way that we practice yoga in the West is quite different, I'm sure. And I'm just speaking about the intention and the onset of the practice thousands of years ago. I did read the texts, oh goodness, 20, 25 years ago. So it's all a bit fuzzy. Yeah, I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) But the intention of the creation of the practice, that was the intention, was to silence the body and to make it still, to keep the comments of the body quiet so you could sit for hours and hours. Was that Patanjali? Yes, yeah. I think so. He was kind of rigid. I wasn't particularly enthralled with his approach. Yeah, to be very clear, like my tradition, I come from Haiti and voodoo is the cultural practice there. And if there's anything that's the total opposite of rigidity, that's, that's what it is. And so my preference my personal cultural preference and positionality with the way I was raised is to go dance to drums and not to sit still for hours. But that's where I'm coming from. So, You left Haiti in your 30s, you say? I did. So mm-hmm. you, you really were totally born and bred. Born and bred. So talk about that experience of dancing and losing yourself in that mysterious realm of the body space. Yeah, it's Because the body does include the mind. I don't see any real separation between body and mind. No, no, neither do I. Yeah. I actually believe that the mind is actually the sum total of all of the experiences that the body has had. I both danced professionally in the National Dance Company where we danced the traditional folkloric voodoo dances. And the drumbeat, after a two-hour class, I would kind of enter something of a trance-like state where I just felt completely all body And I've gone to a couple ceremonies. Um, How to speak about that experience? It's difficult to speak about that experience because it's a wordless experience and English is not my first language. So I'm two steps removed from being able to describe the experience. It is certainly highly sensual. All of the senses are very aware and alert and engaged. And it's a thoughtless experience. So... Are the senses, in a sense, merged with the environment so that there's no sense of separation? Well, absolutely. And the senses are always merged with the environment. It's just I'm no longer thinking about the fact that my senses are merged with the environment. And you no longer have an awareness of a separate self. Correct. Yeah. That's the true experience of being present. Yes. In the moment. Yes. And in that sense, the present moment, that experience of the present moment is the portal to everything yes in each moment yes yeah mm-hmm. where the magic and mystery and everything yeah is all, eternally yes. yes and continually emerging so that it's not a stasis of a sense of presence and experience right all that we actually have is the present moment right that it, that is all that we have yes. and the brain evolved to solve problems and to take in information and create the next step figure out what to do. But all that information is coming from the body. We've inverted the process where now we sit and think about what to do next, where the natural process is to be in motion and that the brain takes in all that information and decides what the next step is. And since now we spend most of our time so not in motion, so immobile, so sedentary that the brain in my opinion, is just bored to death. It is just bored. So it just creates all this chatter and all these possibilities of what we could be doing right now. And in that way, there becomes this massive barrier between just being in the present moment because there's just so much brain talk and so much brain chatter. So it's a system out of balance. Oh, completely. I reflect back on Gurdjieff and he talked about the three, we're three brain beings. There's the body, the heart, and the mind, which are not separate, 
but they are in relationship. And when any one of the three atrophy or just fall away, then we're out of balance. Certainly. And of course, the other brain, the second brain, the gut, the enteric brain, this is something that I was borderline obsessed with when I was an undergrad was the enteric brain. And because the enteric brain is our gut, that's where the bacteria live that aren't necessarily us, yet we are living in symbiosis with them. And what happens when we eat in a way that is not sustainable or natural to our species, we change the bacteria that are there and it's completely different colonies. So it's differently colonized. And we have changed the primary way of understanding the world and our brain, because we are no longer eating correctly, we're no longer thinking correctly. That's something I've noticed that the way I eat can not only affect my body, but it affects my moods, the way yes. I think, yes, the way I perceive, and the way I feel. Absolutely. In response to all of that. Because we see ourselves as thinking and all of these things coming from the organ of the brain, of the gray matter, but that's not where any of it comes from. It's all coming from the body. So this thing about the brain and the gray matter, it's really just a processor of all the information that's yes. being channeled to it through our nervous system. Yes. And, and it's not a one-way street. No. And for those that remember learning about the reflex, there are even things that happen that don't even make it to your brain. Like your body processes it so that your brain doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. So life is incredibly mysterious and amazing and wondrous the more we delve into it. Yes. And the more we do delve into it, the more we realize, God, there's so much we don't know. And there's so much more. It's this massive, huge horizon that exists on dimensional levels that are even beyond what we know we can perceive at. Absolutely. And for me, the wonder just begins with your own body. Like the universe is a magical, wonderful place, but so are you. You are part of this universe. And what is happening in your body is just as magical and fascinating and wondrous. And it's an easy, easy place to begin this exploration because it's always with you. And it's not just the body in the physical sense that most people think of muscles bones. There's the emotional body as well, which is in the body. Which is in the body. It's a subtler or just a different level of being in the body. Sure. However, it is the body in the sense that your emotions are actual things that your body produces through hormones, through neurotransmitters, through all of these things that actually are tangible muscle, flesh, fascia, bone, things. And your body holds on to emotions because they are not an ethereal thing that's just floating along somewhere in the air. It's something your body actually produces and is tangible. And for anybody who studied massage, particularly deep tissue massage, yes. rolfing, how trauma experience, all experience gets lodged in the body that memory is stored in the body, yes. that the mind, the subconscious mind, is the body. Yes. It's the body of the mind, in a sense. Yes. Even though they're not separate. Correct. And I think it's only subconscious in our societal life ways. I don't think it's subconscious naturally. I think that it is fully conscious in a human being that is still intact. Depending on how you define fully conscious. I think, sure. I mean, all that information, all that is always available to us. Sure. And we can tap into it whenever we want to. One thing that many of us experience in this world, when we're trying to remember something, we can't remember things, that things tend to get lost. Mm. And it's a sense of disconnection mm. on that level. Mm. And that just hints at a much vaster degree of disconnection. Yes. That we experience as we explore that experience in yes. ourselves. Sure. Being a human being is a pretty amazing, funny thing. I think so. I really love that I'm human. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing about this complexity theory. It's emerging from science, which is people in their ivory towers thinking up these things. They're looping back around to a more accurate sense of, like quantum physics, it's a very similar thing, that we're having these experiences and we're learning from the experiences. We have memory of the experience. And our relationships grow and evolve from 
our experiences and our memory of our experiences and the way we relate and integrate those experiences and how we adapt to them, we learn from them and change from them. And this is the process of life. Yes. And I get excited when I see science looping around every once in a while one of their tangents or one of their loops will actually return back to Earth. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, most definitely. Mm. You were wanting to talk about the embodiment of colonized values. Mm. We haven't really gotten We've alluded been to around it. So what is this thing about colonized values and how they become embodied? Mm. We are all colonized. That's the first thing that we need to understand. It is a spectrum. Some of us are actually the colonizers. And or more engaged on that level yes, of the equation. Yes, and some of us have been colonized. All of us. All of us. Just at least to some degree. Yes, and the large part of that, for me, the two goals of colonization are to create a monoculture and to create passive life forms. That is what colonization does. And the values... And the methods to support those things are things such as valuing stasis, valuing purity and wiping things out, sterility, valuing submissiveness, valuing these ideas that somebody else will tell you how to live and how to be and to be a good citizen and obey. These are all values of colonization. And the way that we embody them, they are vast and we can't even see them because they are just life to us. They become the water that we're swimming absolutely, in. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that the fish swim in. That the fish swim in. But, for example, the fact that we sit all day, for the most of us, that is what we do. We sit. And one of the first things that colonizers do when they decide to colonize a place is to grab the children of those who are there, whose land it actually is, and put them in chairs in a classroom. And this actually changes your anatomy. It changes your body's capability to gain an upright posture. And it tucks in your pelvis. It atrophies your psoas muscle. It rounds your shoulders, which means you can't take a deep breath anymore. And these are all the postures of subservience. And it creates one way of thinking. It creates a monoculture by wiping something else out. It's a cultural genocide. So that is just one small example of what I'm talking about. And when I talk about passive life forms, I don't just mean humans. We colonize by wiping out and stripping the land of the native plants that can survive without us. They don't need us. And we plant these domestic garden plants that demand so much time and attention. They are receivers. They need attention. They need us. And we usually do that by planting. And it becomes a monoculture of corn or other things like that, where we've wiped out diversity. And when you look around at our culture, when somebody veers outside of it, either in their presentation, the way they cut their hair or anything like that, that threatens the colonized monocultural value. So it's also one of these things that's really complex, but that's kind of the beginning, I think. Education is, mm. is a hot topic. Yeah. And I'm fascinated with education. I've always been interested in education. I went to public schools in this country. Yeah. I did one year, I'm Jewish, and I did one year of Catholic school in southern Spain. Ooh. And that was an interesting experience, going from large public schools in New York City to a two-room schoolhouse, girls in one room and boys of all ages in one room. And that was a radically different experience. But even there, it's a culture of colonization. Absolutely. The difference, I think, is in Spain, it was much more on the surface. Yes. Whereas here, there's like a science to it. Mm. And it evolves, or some might say it devolves. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for my parents, particularly my father, I probably would have fallen much more deeply into that colonization but I was getting the counterculture perspective as I was growing up. So that even while I was in school, 
I could see that what was going on was not right, some aspects of it. I wasn't really old enough to really fully grasp things, but I just could feel them in my body, that mm. something was not right. Mm. And there were certain very distinct ways that I responded and recognized it. And those of us who recognize it have to go through a life of unlearning everything. Yes, yes. I like to separate in my mind to make things clear for myself the difference between the world and the earth. And the world is something that humans, we've created the world. And when we talk about the real world, we're talking about something that's actually not real at all. It's, it's just something that we've all agreed to behave in. And for the most part, we are all educated for tools to operate in the world and completely helpless and uneducated in relating to the earth. And I find that such a tragedy because civilizations rise and fall all the time and the world is precarious and fragile and it's not real. It is our, it's that illusory safety. The world will always be there, but it won't. The earth, however, is there. We may not always be here, but the earth is there and we are all pulled away from the earth in this process of education to become more effective cogs in the wheel of the world. Of the imaginary world the that imaginary we're all agreeing. world. It's the consensus reality. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That really is in pretty much its totality is completely separate from the earth. Yes. And that is what most education is, is that perpetuation and indoctrinating children to believe that this separateness is a thing, that it's a real thing. And that it's more real than anything else. Yes. And that earth and that dirt and the greenery and yes. the rain and nature and animals. Yes. That's not real. We create zoos yes. and we create movies and we create all sorts of artificial representations of it that create an artificial barrier, like a glass yes. barrier through which we can look at it as a separate reality. Yes, and you've just described houses and cities that we we also are an animal living in a zoo. We have zooed up ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Knowledge it can free us and it can enslave us. Yep. It can limit us. And that's why the body is so important because it always will take you towards freedom. That's where it wants to be. It wants to be sovereign. It wants to be out there walking in the woods or engaging with its natural environment. That's where it's most happy. I love this term sovereign and sovereignty. Yes. And it's often talked about just in terms of royalty. Yes. But that's a metaphor for who we really are. Absolutely. And it's been such an important word for me because I actually grew up, like I mentioned, in Haiti and that's where I'm from. And I learned very early on about how important national sovereignty is, that a nation must be recognized as sovereign and what happens on a national level when a nation's sovereignty is not respected. And then I just took that as further and think about my individual sovereignty and my individual sovereignty, by sheer definition, must recognize every other individual's sovereignty. And sovereignty is my guiding, like it's my word, it's my totem word. It's very important to me. And you talk about it as being an experience that we can really only have in our bodies. Absolutely. Directly. Directly. In our bodies. Directly. In the very moment that we get to experience it in. Yes, it's all about consent. It's all about non initiation of violence. It's all about these things. And when we say that the only way you can be successful in this world is to sit here for eight hours, that's quite a violation of sovereignty. Mm. You're from Haiti and you brought up national sovereignty. Yes. And Haiti is one of the nations of the world who have been trampled upon most and have been disregarded yes. the most has been subject to some of the most devastating circumstances environmentally, politically, yes, and then completely dismissed as being irrelevant. Why? It seems so Haiti has been singled out very uniquely in that way. And I Oh, that's a very easy answer to give you actually as to why. Haiti is the first free black republic and has never been forgiven for it and will always be punished for that. It mm. is it is 
the seat of revolution against colonized ideas. It is where freedom was first really understood in the colonized world. And the inherent racism of colonization will never allow Haiti to be forgiven for that transgression. It's amazing how that history lesson is so deeply ingrained in the colonized world. Yes. To the degree that it won't be let go of. They won't let go of that. No, and the propaganda against Haitians and the way that Haitians are viewed throughout the world are a result of colonized values regaining the intellectual power to punish an entire people. And when I say it's the first free black republic, it's very difficult for people to who have grown up where they are the majority, those that are light-skinned, to even comprehend what it means to be in a nation where every single person just about is dark, dark-skinned. Dark, dark-skinned. Yeah. Like the epitome of the other. The epitome of the other, rising up and gaining victory over the colonizer. Yeah. And for me, as a white person living in traditionally the, the safest, most stasis-enjoying yes. country on the planet, I'm aware of that, mm. but I don't know it in my body. Yes. I mean, I have no experience of that. I'm Jewish, so I have memories of the fear and trauma of that. And growing up, I was surrounded by that fear to some degree. Mm -hmm. But for an entire nation and every aspect of it to be other. I mean, Haiti is the poster child of being dissed, of being devalued, yes. and being put down, and having a massive grudge held against it in perpetuity. Absolutely. And my experience of growing up there was really quite unique. I am, this is the radio, so I am biracial. However, if you just saw me walking down the street, you would assume that I was white. I'm really quite light-skinned. And so I actually grew up with the experience of being other. I didn't grow up with the embodied experience of being in the majority. And so being in the United States is just this really bizarre experience for me. It's almost like my entire world is being turned inside out when I'm here. It's, it's just very strange. How is that... I hear that, and I can understand intellectually, but I don't know that experience. Yeah, it's really difficult to describe. Nobody knows just by looking at me that I am other. I still identify in my head as being other. But when I am home, when I am in Haiti, I mean, I don't blend into a crowd. That's for sure. You know, it's really difficult to explain to people that are surrounded by people that look like them the completely disconcerting, often terrifying experience of looking so different that there's nowhere to hide. And that is so many people here in the United States are dealing with that right now. They're right now dealing with the reality of being targeted just because of the way that they look and knowing that there's nowhere to hide and their experience in their body. And this is why it's so important to understand that violence happens in bodies and to bodies. And some people's embodied experience is radically different than yours. And, mm. and really the only way to understand that is to experience it in your body. Yes. And if you haven't had that experience, it's hard to connect with it. It's very difficult. It's very, and, very difficult. And right now in our society... We are coming to a new head of lowness. It seems as though <laughs> yes. we, we were making so much progress in terms of racial awareness and openness and acceptance and dissipation of that sense of otherness and fear of the other. And yet it appears that that was an illusion. It absolutely is an illusion. Absolutely. And that it's been an illusion all along. Yes. What is really going on? What? What? Oh, how, my what's your sense of this? Because for many white people who really just see what's going on on the surface and think, oh, humanity's making all these great strides, we're out of touch. Yes. I mean, completely. Completely out of touch. Oblivious and out of touch. Yes. 
thank you for saying it. I didn't want to be the one to say it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you talk about Haiti and what you were saying, that's happening all the time. Colonization is not something that's in the past. It's continuously happening. And once that awareness is reached and you start listening to people that are in power and political power speak, just even saying things like, you know, here on this land of America... Like already an uncolonized mind will pick that apart to shreds. This land isn't America. That's what we call it now because some white people came and took it. And those of us that live in a body that is not the body that is approved of or that holds power in this society, we're aware all the time, all the time that this propaganda that everything is fine is just propaganda. (laughs) as you're talking about this I am reflecting I do have a bit of that experience growing Mm. up as a child I was a small blonde child growing Mm. up in a immigrant neighborhood Mm. in Manhattan and I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb and I was at risk all the time because they were these roving kind of gangs who threatened my survival yeah and I learned to see them a block away yeah So I do have a sense of that, but that's an unusual experience for a white person in this country. Yes, it is. Very unusual. And eventually I ended up moving out of that, at least by the time I got up here. Yeah. One of the whitest places on the planet. (laughs) So white. So white. (laughs) (laughs) And so comfortably oblivious. Yes. I mean, we have these very warm, fuzzy, progressive values, and it's so easy to think that everything is beautiful and Rosie, because we all agree upon the same values. Yes. But there's another world outside of our borders. Yes. Particularly as you head south. Yeah. And to get back to this thinking about all is connected, borders are a completely imaginary thing as well. Like, it affects us all on different levels. We're all suffering this. And some of us are suffering it so much more. And... This complete disconnection is a way of suffering this. It's a way of protecting ourselves from the trauma that on some level we know exists. So you've been feeling this all along. Mm -hmm. Since last Tuesday, (laughs) I have had this very uncomfortable feeling, not my usual type of grieving, but the sense of that I'm picking up on this collective grieving and collective fear and discomfort yeah that's unlike pretty much anything i've experienced it's so fascinating those that are in white bodies the experience that they're having right now about this development but this development is right in line with all the core values that founded this country Mm -hmm. it's just that they're not hiding it this time no and it really hasn't been hidden all along it's just there was a certain awareness and more and more people are becoming aware that oh this probably isn't right but it's not really been hidden i don't think yeah you're right yeah to some degree it was hidden when confronted sure but this time around it's not even being denied no even when it's confronted in fact they're standing proud and tall about it and i think that's what's so scary for us white people is that all of a sudden our clothes are being ripped off Yes, and that's a new experience for people in this country. However, those of us that grew up outside of this country, when Americans would visit, that's the same attitude. It's the same entitled, you know, this is ours attitude. Mm -hmm. The victor is always the victor. Yes. Power gets to write the story. Even if it's just a story. Yeah, (laughs) that's all it ever is. It's always a story. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has their story, and power just gets to write the one that everybody has to agree on. So what's it like being on the other side of the story? What is the story on the other side? What is the story like not being in the power position? Yeah, because we are a tiny minority. I mean, us white people. Yes. Tiny minority on the planet, but we have created this incredible illusion of security and stasis. Yes. And the victor story. Yes. On the other side, it's people that matter. Relationships matter. My identity as an individual is far less important than 
my identity within a social group that is working towards the same things, that personal beliefs are really inconsequential, that the way that we work together ensures our survival, that the way that my body feels and interacts with other bodies is really all that matters. The fact that I can eat once a day is plenty. If I have access to water, that is everything because water is life, no dapple. And that's a reality that people deal with every single day is just the basics of life and being able to have access to those, that is everything. And in this country, we have this incredible luxury of the sense of individualism and the ability to think that we are islands unto ourselves and able to do whatever we damn please. And it's really fascinating because those of us that see the story from the other side don't see it as a luxury at all. We see it as very sad. It's like a sickness. It is a sickness. It's a separation. Yes. Yeah. Something <laughs> that um, I've been tackling a bit on the show recently. Mm. There's this wonderful book, Dispelling Watiko. The term Watiko is a Native American term that refers to that sickness of separation. Yes. Of what can emerge from an isolated being. Yes. To put it in the simplest terms. Yes. How insane it can be. It is. And how poisonous it is. It is. And how it affects everything. Yes. And this is the world that we live in. As you can see much more clearly, we are all interconnected and we all have to live and share all of this together. Whereas in the white culture, the dominant white culture, we have this illusion that we can go it alone. We've always had plenty of food and water and comfort and safety. And we can't even imagine the stories of the people that are saying, hey, wait a minute, all this is about to end. We can't even believe in it because we have no inkling, we have no experience of that in our history. I would encourage people to ask themselves, why is it that they always have food and water and all of these things? I think the answer is really painful. I mean, all of these things are being provided on the backs of others that often do not have access to these things. So I think that's really important to remember. You're not just born into this luxury where other people aren't providing for you. And that's a very difficult thing for us white people, us privileged extremely privileged white people to comprehend. Yes. I mean, it's one thing to think of it intellectually, but to feel it yes. in our bodies, which is really the seat of any real meaningfulness. Yes. So again, it, to us, it's like a story, a fairy tale. <laughs> yes. You know, a dark fairy tale. Yes. Even though we're hearing about climate change and we're hearing about people dying. We see images of people dying all over the world. Devastation. We're so isolated, so insulated, that it's still a distant story. Yes. It's still unreal. Yes. Even those of us who profess to understand that it is real, we still don't get it. Right, because we embody the colonized values and the choices that we make on a daily basis are complicit in continuing the system. Exactly. Yeah. And it's been handed down to us generation after generation yes. with no meaningful counter experience. Correct. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jenny Martino, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been profound. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. This has been the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick.